This is a picture of my father-in-law. Now, unfortunately, hair genes don't come through your wife's dad. Uh, otherwise, I'd be in a lot better shape. Uh, but this is a man I love very much. Now, my father-in-law is a photographer. In fact, he worked for the city of Philadelphia for more than 30 years as a photographer. And now, even though he's retired, he still loves taking trips into the city of Philadelphia and taking pictures. In fact, he really loves the areas of the city that are a little bit rougher, a little more broken down, you know, the kind of places I'd be locking my doors and driving through as fast as I could. Uh, he'll drive his convertible in, get out and take pictures all afternoon. My father-in-law will still sometimes rent out space in a gallery or a restaurant to display his work and to offer it for sale. And when he does that, very often he'll have to make sure that every picture has a name or a title so that it can be sold. And once in a while, if we happen to be visiting, right around the time he's getting ready for one of those shows, he will let us weigh in on what he should call a certain picture. So for instance, here is one of the photographs my father-in-law has taken, and he would show us this photograph and say, what do you think it should be called? That's when I chime in and say, how about door? Uh, which is when he reminds me, that's why you're a pastor, not an artist. Uh, but if you had to give this photograph a name, what would you call it? Possibly. <laughs> Here's a, another picture that my father-in-law has taken. If you had to give this a title, what word comes to your mind for this one? My father-in-law calls this apocalypse, which I think is pretty good. But my father-in-law doesn't just shoot pictures of urban landscapes. He also takes pictures of the people of Philadelphia. So here's one more picture that my father-in-law took a number of years ago. Now, if you had to give this a title, if you had to give this picture a name, what word comes to mind when you see it? <laughs> I'll tell you the word that comes to my mind. It's the word desperate. Now, we have covered a lot of different aspects of faith in our Voyager series. And through that, we have seen all kinds of faith needs that we'll have as people of God. But today, we're going to add one more kind of faith that we're going to need. It's a little different than what we talked about so far. Today, I want to talk to you about desperate faith. Now, we are in week number eight of our Voyager series, and we have been tracking with the Apostle Paul on his journey to Rome in the last couple chapters of the book of Acts. And really, throughout this series, we have been locking in to three different words that define the life of a Voyager. We've talked about the first one, are you ready? Fixing our eyes on that pioneer on that sojourner, on the voyager, Jesus Christ, and following his example? Are you willing to be a living sacrifice? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul's own words using that living sacrifice terminology. And then third, are you able through Christ to follow whatever path God would have you on? And we've seen that those who are ready, willing, and able are primed to be able to leap out in faith for God. And I know a lot of people have been wondering throughout this series, God has been working in your own mind, what is it in my life that God may want me to leap out in faith? But we know as a child of God, 
So often when we talk about taking risks or leaping in faith, fear becomes part of the equation, right? And so we've been asking ourselves this really important but simple question, am I operating in fear or in faith? Now, faith is one of those words that we say a lot and we hear a lot, but it's a, it's a term that can be kind of fuzzy in the minds of believers. And so we've been looking at Old Testament examples of faith and seeing how they played out in the life of Paul. And we've seen some amazing stories from the Old Testament already in this series. We started with maybe faith. Remember the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer? We talked about furnace faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Awesome faith with Nehemiah. We talked about blameless faith with the life of Joseph. Altar faith with Abraham. Of course, Queen Esther taught us valiant faith. And then last week, fear chooses to dismay. Faith chooses to obey. We talked about storm faith in the life of Noah. But today, we're going to add one more faith to our series, what we're going to call desperate faith. And we're going to find that faith in the last place we'd expect, the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Let's pray as we dive into God's word together this morning. Father, we ask you that you would meet us in these moments. Would you teach us what you want us to hear? Would you work in our hearts? We invite you there to do only what you can do to transform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you remember the story of Rahab? <laughs> well, the story of Rahab actually starts with the children of Israel because after 40 years of wandering around the wilderness, Moses had finally died and Joshua was ready to take over as his successor. And the people were primed to finally enter the land that God had promised them, the land of Canaan. Now, one of the first things that Joshua does in his new leadership position is he assigns two spies to go in and spy out the land. And he tells them, I want you to especially look at the city of Jericho. Now, cities like Jericho in the Judean desert were sometimes surrounded by these massive mud brick and stone walls to protect the inhabitants from outsiders. And so Joshua 2 tells the story of these two spies making their way into the city of Jericho and finding their way into the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Now, this is before like Verbo, of course. And so your options as a traveler were limited. And it's likely that Rahab's house wasn't just a place of prostitution, but also a place of public housing. And so it's probably the public nature of Rahab's house that's what actually gets the spies in trouble because somebody evidently overhears enough of what's going on with them to get word to the king of Jericho that there are two spies in the house of Rahab. So next thing you know, the king sends some people to Rahab's house demanding that, they tell, uh, that Rahab tells them where these spies are. And that's when our Rahab does something totally unexpected. She protects the spies. The text actually tells us that she had taken them up on her roof. And after she had sent the messengers of the king away, we actually get to listen in to a conversation between Rahab and the spies in Joshua chapter two, verse eight. Listen to what it says. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then listen to this statement of faith, not from an Israelite woman. This is from a Canaanite prostitute. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then she has a request for them in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And then we hear from the spies. They say to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then the text tells us that at that point, she begins to lower these spies out of her house by a rope through a window. And it's actually when we learn that her house was actually built into the walls of Jericho. But right there, as the spies are leaving her home, they pause and they give Rahab two specific instructions. They tell her to tie a scarlet or a red cord in her window, probably to let them know which house was hers. And they say to gather her family in her home. And if she does those two things, she'll be safe. And so we read her words in verse 21, according to your words, she says, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And then the spies run off and Rahab is left with just their word. Now, what do you think the emotions were that were going through Rahab's mind as she tied that scarlet cord to her window? Think about what the next few days must have been like for her as she waited a week, maybe two weeks for those spies with the armies of Israel to return if you know the, the story of how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, think of what her life would have been like as she looked out her window and saw the army of Israel begin to walk around her house on the first day. And then again on the second day and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day. And then on the seventh day to see those armies walk around her house seven times for her to hear the sound of the trumpets and the shout of the men of war to be huddling in her home and then to feel the very walls of her home shaking as the walls came down. How do you think Rahab's faith was tested in those moments? How desperate do you think she was? Last week, we left Paul in a different desperate situation where just like Rahab, his faith was being tested. If you remember back to Acts chapter 26, we saw that Paul had demanded an audience with Caesar. And so we started chapter 27. He had found passage on a boat as a prisoner to go to Rome. But Paul's trip had not been going well, if you remember. In fact, 
They had been driven off course. They had missed the port of Phoenix. Uh, Luke tells us that there was this massive storm, a nor'easter that came down and drifted them away. In fact, our text tells us the storm was so violent that the captain and crew began to throw the cargo overboard and all the ships tackle. Luke even tells us that the sun and the moon couldn't be seen during the storm. So not only are they drifting out here at sea, they have no way to navigate where they are. It got so bleak in verse 20 that Luke reports basically everybody on the ship had given up all hope to survive. And in that situation that Paul found himself, if you remember, he got a vision from an angel telling him that everybody on board was going to be safe. And so he addressed the ship in chapter 27, verses 25 and 26. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But (laughs) we must run aground on some island. And so we pick up our story this week, chapter 27, verse 27, with Paul in some pretty dire straits. But this is what our text says. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So we get here the first glimmer of hope. The sailors get some clue that land must be approaching. It's the middle of the night. Probably they can hear the sound of waves crashing on a shore. And so they immediately react. Text says they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, about 120 feet. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, about 90 feet. So they get this sense of land approaching, and then using stone weights, probably something like this, they attach ropes and they begin to check the depth of the water over the edge of the ship. And they would do this by measuring off the lengths of rope as they pulled it back up. So what do their measurements tell them? Land is coming fast. Fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, if you and I were in this situation, we might just be glad after 14 days of being at sea that land is nearby. But from a sailor's perspective, coming into possibly a rocky coast in the middle of the night in the pitch black is not what you want. So they drop these anchors from the back of the ship. Now, a little known fact about me, I, uh, I took a sailing class in college for three months. I got to learn how to basically rig up a ship, how to do some basic maneuvers out in the water. And so you can take it from a B-plus sailing student here uh, that typically you would not drop anchors from the back of a boat. It seems like these sailors just want to slow this ship down. And we get a window into just how bad these sailors thought their situation was as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So some of the sailors pretend that they're going to release more anchors when in fact they are lowering the ship's lifeboat. Now, I don't know how many nervous flyers there are in the room. I'm not in love with airplanes. I don't mind flying either. But when I'm on an airplane and I begin to hear maybe some noises I'm not sure about or maybe feel some of the turbulence, one of the things I'll do is look at the stewardess, look at the attendants and see how they're reacting. You know, if they're looking just fine, still pushing their little car down the aisle, I know I'm, I'm okay. But if you're in a boat and you see the crew panicking, trying to lower a lifeboat and get off, you are in trouble. And that's what's happening in our ship here. Paul evidently finds out about it. And even though he has a promise from God, Paul still knows, hey, the human agents, the sailors are still going to be necessary here. 
And so he finds the centurion, Julius, and our text says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, these sailors stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So now everybody in this boat is all together. And Paul's promise that everybody's going to be safe is going to be put to the test. Now, this is actually a good point in our story to just pause for a moment and to consider something that's been brewing in this chapter. You know, at this point in our series, actually all three of the last series of Acts, we have been traveling with Paul all over the Mediterranean world. I mean, we know this guy very well by now. And so it's not surprising to us when we see Paul taking charge of this situation on the ship. I mean, he's telling people what to do. He's telling the centurion, don't let those soldiers leave. He's addressing everybody from a public position. And for us, it's not that surprising. But time out. Paul is a prisoner on this ship. So if you're our sailor or you're one of the crew member or you're one of the other passengers on the ship, you have to be thinking, who is this guy who's telling everybody, including the captain and the centurion, what to do all the time? What we get here is actually another amazing characteristic of a voyager, of Paul. He's always ready to lead. Always ready to lead. One commentator says that Paul steps up and leads here because he's the only one left on the ship with any faith. Paul's example teaches us that we don't have to be in charge in order to have influence. In fact, God may have you in a minor or even a menial position in your life and yet have big plans for your influence. Don't ever say, I'm just a mechanic or I'm just a nurse, I'm just a cashier. I'm not in a position to make a big impact. Paul's example here teaches us that voyagers are always ready to step up and lead no matter what the circumstances are. A faith-filled mechanic can absolutely change the culture of an auto shop. A faith-filled nurse can transform a hospital. A faith-filled cashier can change a store, just like a faith-filled prisoner can alter every single person's life on this ship. Well, Paul, once again, acting as the leader here, addresses the ship in verse 33. The text says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So he reaffirms this promise. And then right in the middle of the common area of the ship, Paul leads the ship in a public prayer to God. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. So we finally get a tally of the total passengers. And when they had eaten enough, they, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And so with land approaching, they know that for sure. They know they're going to crash. The best course of action here is to get rid of the rest of the cargo, to lighten up the ship as much as possible, get it up as high in the water as they can. And so that's what they do. And then we fast forward a few moments, and now it's first light. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship 
ashore. So where in the world are Paul and Luke and the rest of the people on this ship at this point? Well, they have been out to sea for two weeks and they have been tossed by the storm, but have made it all the way across the Adriatic Sea, all the way over to the tiny little island of what they'll find is Malta. Now, Malta has rocky coasts on it, but it also has areas that kind of gradually rise up into beaches, and that's apparently what they see in verse 39. Now, I have a picture of what's called St. Paul's Bay here in Malta. This is the traditional location uh, for where Paul's shipwreck was. You can see there are some rocky areas, but there are also some areas with some beaches. And, you know, archaeologists and historians will tell us it probably looked a little different. In fact, maybe these two are, were connected back in Paul's day with a, a little beach. But um, archaeologists have even found uh, parts of Roman ships from that era about when Paul would have been traveling, anchors and so on. We don't know exactly if it's Paul's ship or not, but the point is, from our text, it looked a little bit like this, at least, with a beach that they could finally bring this boat to shore. And so, in verse 40, we read this. They cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they go for it here, they made for the beach. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So they had a plan, but the boat didn't quite make it there. It gets stuck in this reef, and now they're in real trouble. And to add to the problem, Luke then reminds us that this is not just a ship. This is a ship filled with prisoners. And so we read in our text, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. In fact, if you know the code of Justinian, you would know that a soldier was responsible for a prisoner. And if that prisoner escaped, that soldier could be liable to face the same punishment as the prisoner that escaped. And they don't want to take any chances. So they're preparing to kill the prisoners when once again, Paul's influence plays in. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. It's like a scene out of a movie here. <laughs> but just as the angel had said, everybody on that ship miraculously was saved. Now, um, I went to college in Florida and uh, my first semester there, I experienced what's probably the worst part about living down there and that is the hurricanes. My first semester there was September 2004 and we got a category five storm called Hurricane Ivan. I remember the days leading up to this storm coming. Uh, somebody told me you better go and find a place to fill up your gas because sometimes you can't get that after a storm comes through. So I remember driving into the city just the day or two before this storm came and looking around, everything was boarded up, sandbags everywhere. I'm just this kid from Canada, 18 years old. Like, what am I in for here? I'm like, we're used to watching out for moose, not hurricanes. So the hurricane, day of the hurricane comes. I remember they had us go down to the cafeteria for one more big meal uh, as a student body before they would give us sort of take-home lunches and things like that. And walking down to the cafeteria and hearing in the distance these hurricane horns. Mm, mm, it's very eerie sensation. <laughs> but anyway, the day, uh, the night of the hurricane coming came, they, they moved us all into the, the lower floors of our dorm. I mean, they crammed us in there. We were in these interior hallways and, you know, you get every cast of character you can imagine in that situation. You have the guitar guy, you have the, the board game people. I mean, they're all there. 
Uh, somehow we survive the night. I remember sometimes these windows breaking out and wind would rush into the building. You just hear the doors banging and all kinds of sounds and things like that, but we made it through. I'll tell you, the thing I remember most about that experience wasn't the night of the hurricane. It was walking outside afterwards and seeing the damage everywhere. Now, our campus had fared pretty well, but I remember, I mean, you can see some of the pictures of the community. It was completely destroyed. I joined a crew to help some of the cleanup in one of the neighborhoods. And I mean, there wasn't a leaf left on a tree, it seemed like. The whole ground was just covered with debris. And if you talk to people that live down there, they'll tell you if they've gone through storms before. I mean, it's one thing to get through a storm, that's great. But sometimes the harder part is the aftermath. So at this point in our story, Paul and the captain and the crew and the centurion and the soldiers and the passengers and the prisoners and Luke, they've all survived our storm. But now where are they? Now it's time to pick up the pieces and figure out what to do next. And we actually see another characteristic of a voyager here. He's willing to keep going. See Paul's perseverance here. And so in Acts chapter 28, verse 1, Luke continues with our story, says this, a few more verses today. After we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. I mean, sometimes when you read these sections of Acts, you think Paul is the unluckiest guy I've ever heard of in my life. He survives a shipwreck and then he gets bitten by a snake. And not just any snake. This is a, a deadly poisonous snake. In fact, so dangerous, the native people assume Paul is a goner. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire. Who hasn't done that? And suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. So in a book filled with extraordinary acts, here's another one for us. Paul surviving this danger on Malta. Well, as Paul's time on Malta is actually already coming to a close, we see him doing some of the same things we're used to seeing Paul do. Verse seven, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. And guess what? <laughs> Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So we get some vintage Paul here. We get another opportunity to see Paul acting in his apostolic role, doing miracles, not only surviving the snake bite, also healing people on the island of Malta. But Malta is not where Paul wants to be. And so in our next verse, we see Paul already packing up. They also honored us greatly. When we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered the island. So after two weeks of a storm, three months of a detour on Malta, Paul and Luke are back on track, ready to get back to their journey to Rome. And if you come back next week, uh, you'll hear whether they do in fact make it to their destination. So we have the shipwreck of Paul, Acts chapter 27 and 28. It's an amazing story. You know, one of the things that has always stood out to me in this story is the level of detail that we get. You probably heard this all throughout the story. 
I mean, Luke tells us where the winds are coming from, how many anchors they put down, not from the front of the ship, but from the back. He tells us the number of fathoms. I mean, the detail is off the charts. But with all of that detail that Luke gives us, he gives us very little of what Paul was thinking this whole time. We have gone through a lot of verses even today, seen all kinds of dramatic scenes. We get to see Paul's public response, him standing up and leading. But we don't really know what was happening inside Paul, do we? If you think about it, Paul is just a man who is trying to follow God's call and obey by going to Rome. And yet, Paul faces just desperate circumstance after desperate circumstance. We see this in just the two chapters we talked about today. On a ship for two weeks in a storm, ship gets stuck in the reef, daring swim to shore, bitten by a snake when he gets there, three months in the wrong place. Even though Paul had a promise from God, he still faced these challenges and these difficulties and these trials. You have to wonder as you're reading these verses, were there moments when Paul was thinking, God, are you still with me here? In fact, I can't read these chapters of Acts without wondering, will Paul be able to keep trusting? Will Paul be able to keep trusting? Now, I think about Paul in these desperate circumstances the same way I think about Rahab. Rahab up from the window of her home, watching these armies go around her city, huddling there with her family, feeling the walls around her coming down. See, both Paul and Rahab were waiting for God to come through for them. Both of them had a promise from God but both of them found themselves in desperate circumstances. How were they able to keep trusting? To be honest with you, uh, Rahab has always been a little bit of a puzzle to me. We, uh, we read the rest of her story in Joshua chapter six, when after the walls come tumbling down, Joshua himself sends those same two spies into Rahab's home to get her and her family out, honoring the promise that they had made to her. But as you read Rahab's story in Joshua 2 and in Joshua 6, you are left wondering what was so special about Rahab's faith. I mean, we have all these amazing stories of these Old Testament characters. Some of our voyagers that we've covered so far, people like Joseph, like Abraham, like Esther, people like Noah and Nehemiah. What is Rahab doing in company like that? And yet, when we read the Hall of Faith Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, who is listed among the elite examples of faith in the Old Testament? Rahab the prostitute. And in James chapter two, when James is trying to think of examples of faith that actually does something, he thinks of two examples. Guess who? <laughs> Abraham and Rahab the prostitute. What is it about Rahab's faith that was so extraordinary? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't what she knew. I mean, this woman knew next to nothing about God. 
It wasn't that she had her life in perfect order. Remember, it's Rahab the prostitute, as every New Testament reference to her makes sure it includes. See, what was extraordinary about the faith of Rahab was that when she came to the edge of a cliff and had nowhere to turn, she leapt toward God. Here is a woman who brought nothing to the table with God. And I think that's why we're supposed to remember her story. Years ago, I was at my father-in-law's house, and um, he had this picture hanging, the same picture I showed you before. I remember just staring at this picture for a long time. Eventually, my father-in-law said, do you want it? (laughs) And I said, sure. So I took it home. I've had it in my house for the last 10 years. This picture has always intrigued me. You see, I've never been where this man is physically. But I have been here in other ways in my life. I've been in desperate circumstances. Times when I didn't know what to do, times where I didn't know where to turn. Have you ever been in a place like that in your life? Maybe you're a a mom out there. I know you love your kids. You sacrificed so much for them. But there's part of a relationship, maybe with even just one of your kids, that can have you feeling so discouraged and so defeated and so desperate. Leaders, you ever felt like that before? (laughs) Maybe all of your customers, all your employees think you have it all together. You are the answer man or the answer woman. But on the inside, you know what it feels like to feel desperate. You ever been there spiritually before? (laughs) Maybe times where you felt so distant from God. Now, maybe you're not a very dramatic person. You say, I'm not sure I would characterize my life that way. But maybe there's a, a small area of your life, even just a sliver of your life maybe a financial circumstance or a health problem, maybe part of a relationship, maybe even with your spouse, where you can find yourself feeling so discouraged and so defeated and so desperate. If that's your life, what does the faith of Rahab teach us? See, Rahab teaches us the power of simple trust when we don't know where to turn. You know, as a pastor, sometimes people will stop by or they'll text or they'll call and they'll share some kind of desperate circumstance that they're going through. And I'll tell you, what you want to be able to do in that moment is give them something helpful, you know, some strategy, some example. Sometimes you want to point to people like we've been studying, Noah or Esther or Nehemiah, give them something, something they can do. But sometimes the only thing that people need to hear is the simple thing. Desperate faith. Rahab faith. You know, even this week, I was standing in my kitchen just praying to God, I want to be able to give the people on Sunday something to take home. I want to be able to give them something. But I got to tell you, I have very little for you today except a small finger that can point to a big God. 
You know, I think Rahab teaches us how we can sometimes overcomplicate faith. She teaches us you don't have to know everything the Bible says. You don't have to have your life in perfect order. There's nothing you need to do. There's no pre-qualification. There's no checklist to accomplish. You simply have to reach out in faith to a great God who will meet you in your weakness. One of the last letters, probably the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, was a little letter of 2 Timothy. Probably wrote it on his deathbed, probably wrote it from Rome after he got there. And after all the crazy adventures of his life and everything he endured, including what we talked about today, all behind him, as he reflected on his life, he gives us this beautiful little line. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I love that testimony of simple faith. This is the faith of Paul the prisoner. This is the faith of Rahab the prostitute. I pray as we begin to conclude our Voyager series with next week being our last one, is this the faith that you need to have in your life? Could that be your testimony? That through everything you're enduring, any desperate circumstance you find yourself in, you can say, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Let's pray. Father, that's our simple prayer as we conclude today. We ask that you would be near to us. Would you meet us in our weakness? Would you teach us the power of desperate faith, of simple faith, of Rahab faith? Would you teach us to follow the example of Paul who circumstance after circumstance, life-threatening trial after life-threatening trial, relationships going sideways, challenge after difficulty, and yet he can say at the end of it all, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. God, may that be our testimony before you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.